0: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. Today we have a special episode with the authors of The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. And I'm pleased that Valerie Hudson, Donna Lee Bowen, and Perpetua Lynn Nielsen will all be joining me today. The First Political Order is the culmination of research conducted for the Women's Stats Project, And there's so much to talk about that we're doing an extended episode with a guest appearance from my friend and stats expert, Minna Whelan. But first, I'm pleased to introduce Valerie Hudson. She is the University Distinguished Professor, and she holds the George H.W. Bush Chair at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University and researches National Security Affairs foreign policy analysis, and gender in international relations. Hudson has authored numerous publications, including Sex and World Peace and Bear Branches, the security implications of Asia's surplus male population, which won the Association of American Publishers Award for Best Book and the Otis Dudley Duncan Award for Best Book in Social Demography. She is the recipient of the Carl G. Mazur Excellence in Teaching Award, served as president of the Foreign Policy Analysis Section of the International Studies Association, and for eight years directed the graduate program in international relations at the David M. Kennedy Center for International Studies at Brigham Young University. She received a PhD from the Ohio State University and has taught previously at Northwestern, Rutgers, and Brigham Young. Valerie, welcome to the show.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Beth.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how this book came about?
1: Sure. Um, I'm in the sort of national security, foreign policy field in um, the larger um, discipline of international relations. And when I was going to graduate school, um, you could have taken every single class I took uh, and never known there were women on the planet Earth. Uh, so the idea that what was going on with women would have anything, anything to do with national security would have been seen as ludicrous. Uh, and so I, I think that, um, in a sense, this book is the culmination of me recovering from that, uh, uh, dire beginning, uh, in that, um, We are making the case in this book that one of the strongest determinants of collective national security is, in fact, uh, how one half of the population is, uh, is treated.
0: So what is the first political order and how does it relate to equality, decision making, conflict and resources?
1: That's a great question. Our assertion, and it's certainly not one that we came up with, I think that many uh, philosophers have suggested this, is that the first political order is actually uh, that political order established between the two halves of uh, humankind. Uh, That is, those who have the potential to become fathers and those who had the potential to become mothers. Uh, And sometimes I say to my class, let's pretend we're in a video design class instead of an international relations class. And let me uh, give you an assignment to create a video game for me. And I say, I'm only going to give you two parameters. And I say, one is that there are uh, two main groups in this game, uh, approximately half, uh, each of which is half of, of your game players. And the the second constraint is that unless these two groups cooperate, there is no next round. It's over. The game is over. And um, they sit back and they say, "Well, well, wait. You've got to tell us more. Uh, tell us um, whether these groups are viewed as equals or unequals. Um, how are resources distributed among these two groups?" How do these um, subgroups make decisions together? Uh, Can one group violently coerce the others, or is that not possible? Um, In other words, they're asking me um, very, very political questions about resource distribution, conflict resolution, decision-making, and even status. And I say precisely, that's exactly right. You cannot um, scope this game out unless you make those decisions. Uh, And those are very political decisions. And I say, well, that's exactly what's happening in human societies, right? That we have a spectrum of human societies. There are some societies in which women are treated not only as second-class citizens, but also perhaps even as subhumans. We have societies in which women are explicitly cut off from access to important resources, uh, such as land and wealth and so forth. Uh, We also have, uh, you know, in some countries, very high levels of domestic violence. Uh, In one study of Afghan women, 87% of Afghan women had experienced uh, domestic violence. Uh, So, uh, you know, our point is, that the the security of the collective actually depends upon the character uh, of that first political order between men and women. And so if that first political order is characterized by autocracy, uh, domination, terror even, uh, exploitation, uh, then that's exactly what you will get for your larger society. It will be insecure. In a sense, whatever you do to your women, you are also, in effect, doing it to your nation state. So if you curse your women, you wind up cursing your nation state as well.
0: And you mentioned that law of the first political order, that what you do to your women, you do to your nation. In a recent New York Times op-ed, when you talk about gender hierarchies, how does that correspond with national security as thought of traditionally in kind of international relations theory?
1: Right. We were very interested in those kinds of outcomes as well. Um, I, and I think that one of the reasons why my graduate education Um, in a sense, insisted there was no relationship is that scholars were unable to see the linkages to things such as terror um, and conflict and uh, other indicators of national security. So when we um, decided uh, that we were going to empirically investigate the linkages that we were proposing, we decided to take a very multi-dimensional view of national security. So we included among our mix of 122 outcome variables, um, uh, indicators that uh, were um, conventional, uh, such as uh, terrorism indicators, civil conflict, international conflict, uh, state fragility, Uh, political violence, I mean, all the usual suspects that you would see in an empirical analysis of national security. But we also added in other dimensions of national security, such as economic performance, uh, such as health, uh, such as uh, demographic security, um, such as environmental preservation, and so forth. Uh, and uh, w- I'm very pleased to tell you that whether you look at the more conventional indicators or whether you look at an expanded definition of national security, uh, the results are the same. The subordination of women comes out as a strongly uh, as, as a strongly determinative uh, factor in explaining these outcomes.
0: There is this idea that if women have more rights, society will benefit overall. And we've seen women's status used as a measure of how we, the United States, measure the success of democracy and governance in other countries. With all this said, there are rarely measurable data presented with these claims. But your project, as you just discussed, is different. Why do you think there's been a lack of data on this subject to date? And why is it important?
1: Well, um, that's an excellent question because, as you mentioned in your introduction, this is actually this this research project is uh, an outgrowth of a larger project that we call the Women Stats Project, and we began that project back in two thousand one. So this is a nineteen year year old project. Uh, when we first started uh, looking at whether there was a linkage between what was going on with women. And what was going on with the nation state, I was doing that in the 90s, in the late 90s. Uh, And um, there was very little data about women. Um, The UN's WISTAT, with its few indicators on female literacy and so forth, was really all there was. My first project was looking at how the abnormal sex ratios of China and India would affect their national security profile. After the success of that project, I was interested in broadening out our understanding of women's situation uh, to incorporate much more than sex ratios. Uh, And so in 2001, uh, I started out with an Excel spreadsheet and 27 variables, uh, and then quickly discovered that... Uh, that I, I wanted to look at more and more variables. Um, and and many of these variables were, were simply, you know, just not being examined at all. Uh, I'll give you, for instance, in our book, one of the 11 indicators that we think is very critical in understanding the subordination of women is the prevalence of patrilocal marriage. Well, good luck. Uh, tried to find any information on the prevalence of patrilocal marriage. Uh, that was one of the reasons why our funding from the Department of Defense under the Minerva Initiative was so critical. It enabled us to hire uh, enough personnel uh, to really make a viable go at getting the kind of data that we needed. Now, all of that being said, Beth, I think the um, that uh, since UNSCR 1325 in the year 2000, we have been seeing much more in the way of data collection on women. It's not perfect yet by any means. And I could tell you, uh, I, I could make your hair curl by telling you tales of uh, data that still goes missing, such as official rape prevalence statistics that are still unavailable for, for so many countries. Um, but we now have things in addition to UN's WISDAT. So we have uh, uh, the um, OECD has a SIGI index, Social Institutions and Gender Index. We have the World Economic Forum with its global gender gap. We have UNDP doing a global in- inequality index. Um, so there's, uh, there's the Data 2X project uh, that... Um, was first started when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So I think there's tons more than there used to be, but there are still problems in getting the data that you need.
0: And you pull together all of these sources to describe a concept called the patrilineal fraternal syndrome, which describes control and subordination of women through a set of conditions and practices. Can you tell us more about that?
1: yeah i know it's kind of a jargonistic term but if you if you read the book and i hope you will read the book um it makes perfect sense uh what we we suggested at uh is that with our understanding of the first political order that we should see a spectrum of countries um uh different collectives different human collectives in terms of uh we'll call them countries some which veer much more towards heavy subordination of women and others that are less subordinative of women. And of course, the, um, the final section of our volume asks, well, how do you move from being a highly subordinative society to being less subordinative? But we'll save that for, um, a later question. Um, so given this spectrum, um, what we found was uh, really noteworthy is that the forms of the subordination of women were pretty universal. That is to say, that um, in subordinative societies, no matter where they are, whether they're in East Asia, whether they're in the Middle East, Sub Saharan Africa, Latin America, uh, you know, other places, you'll find this fascinating uh, set of practices, uh, that really helps to keep women in their place. Uh, so lack of property rights for women, uh, discrimination against women in terms of family law and personal status laws, such as ease of divorce for men and women being very different, custody of children and so forth. Um, polygyny, um, cousin marriage, uh, violence against women, you know, um, sun preference. Um, and, and so we were struck by how, um, how these practices really crossed time and space. You can find them in, in ancient cultures. You can find them in cultures of today. Uh, and so we suggest that these particular practices, these 11 practices that we look at, um, are in a sense a, a universal syndrome Um, that produces uh, bad outcomes for um, collectives, human collectives. I think our contribution to this literature is to suggest why those are fairly universal practices. Uh, So I think our unique theoretical contribution is that these practices arise uh, when societies pursue fraternity As the foundation of physical security for their group. Um, In a sense, the the biggest security dilemma uh, is not for women. It's actually for men. Uh, And we go into this in our book, how um, um, historians and archaeologists and anthropologists can tell you that when one group attacks another group, (laughs) it's the males that are absolutely slaughtered. The women are kept alive. Now, they're obviously not in a very good situation, but they're kept alive. It's the men, right? Uh, It's androcyte, if you will, that occurs when groups clash. Uh, And so the the first and foremost security dilemma is actually for men. Uh, a, A man, a solitary man in a world of men prepared to kill him is a very insecure individual. Uh, and so what is it? What, what can help men? Well, it's fraternity. It's the building of, uh, uh, some type of fraternal organization, a band of brothers, if you will, that will allow that man, uh, a sense of security. Uh, his brothers, his cousins will stand by him. And, uh, uh of course you can also create, um, you know, fictive brothers, such as we see in gangs like MS-13 and platoons, you know, in military organizations and so forth. But the sturdiest, most trustworthy fraternity is one based on biological ties. And that's where you get patrilineality. If society is organized around men, if men control resources and pass those resources fathers to son. If sons stay with their family and daughters marry out from their family, then you can create this strong core of of kin men, the extended male kin network that then becomes the foundation for the physical security of the society. And you can see this in great clarity in um, societies such as Afghanistan and in South Sudan, where the state is very weak. And the only real security to be found is to be found in extended male kin networks. But we go further and suggest that those societies that rely most heavily on that approach to providing security are the least secure. And that's what we're attempting to show, is that through... um, through fraternity, it is essential to severely subordinate women. And in doing so, you reap all sorts of negative consequences in terms of the stability, the security, and the resilience of your, of your collective.
0: I want to talk more about a point you just uh, raised related to the Ken networks. And you tie these concepts of gender relations to family and family networks. And in the book, you say quote, we assert that some present day states are actually a facade behind which extended kin groups hold true power, end quote. How do you take these concepts related to kin groups from the micro level to the macro level? And why is it important to understand that gendered elements of governance and its impact on national security?
1: Right what we suggest is that there, you know there are in fact societies that um are, you know very ones that are very plain right with the real power in afghan society is not with the afghan government right it's with the afghan tribes the real power in south sudan is not with um the the government in south sudan it's it's with the tribes Uh, And of course, those kinds of tribally based societies, clan based societies, those are very open. But there are also societies on which a nominal democracy or soft autocracy has been layered over clans and tribes. So in in much of Central Asia, we see that Uh, in other very uh, still very clan based societies such as Albania, we can see that as well. Uh, where the real action, um, oh even in the Gulf States and Saudi Arabia, the real action is not the quote unquote government, but it's actually the clan politics uh, that uh, determines what's going on um, politically within that nation state. Uh, and so in in a sense, while the root of the problem um, is that uh, the subordination of women, creates uh, a much worse outcome uh, for these societies along a number of dimensions. It's also true that the reason that you subordinated women, that is to get these extended male kin groups, those male kin groups themselves are a source of great instability for the government. In fact, we just published uh, in a journal called Terrorism and Political Violence, a study that shows that when you have these subordinative mechanisms such as bride price and um, uh, polygyny and so forth, those are the societies that are far more likely to create terrorists than other societies. Uh, Because in, in addition to having, in a sense, socialized male children that domestic terror is actually functional, you've also introduced uh, chronic um, goads, if you will, chronic exacerbators, such as bride price, that can lead uh, young men to attempt to garner resources outside of the conventionally accepted uh, ways of doing so. Um, so, in other work that I've done with Hillary Mattfest, we've looked at the role of bride price in terror and rebel groups. Uh, so it's uh, uh, you know as a recruiting tool, right offering resources uh, for young men who've been priced out of the marriage market. So there's a lot that's going on here, and what we're hoping to do is kind of open um, a school of uh, a a school of thought, if you will, Uh, get more researchers looking at these linkages than I've ever looked at it before.
0: Culture becomes a big touch point in discussions about gender and practices related to families. How did you take into account cultural differences while evaluating the measures of your study?
1: We took the approach that uh, culture is simply a word that means how a group does things, right? How it thinks that society should be organized and how it thinks society should be run. And as we previously discussed, um, when you peel back uh, culture, you see a lot of the very same mechanisms appearing regardless of whether you're talking about one continent or another, one religion or another, these practices, in a sense, are foundational. They're they're prior to and establish culture. So these 11 things that we look at, such as levels of violence against women and polygyny and bride price and so forth, uh, are, are not simply cultural. They're very functional. They serve a function, and that function is to create uh, fraternity. Uh, we also... Uh, Uh, felt very strongly uh, that um, each of these uh, 11 subordinative practices that we examine have also been touched on in the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW. Uh, And so each of these subordinative practices has been called out in uh, CEDAW and CEDAW General Recommendations, as being subordinative of women, no matter what culture or religion or ethnicity uh, practices them.
0: Looking at the syndrome globally and your analysis, I know you said you see it universally, but are there particular findings from countries or practices you think might surprise people?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that surprises people, for example, is um, uh, bride price. So people know that, let's say in India, right, there's dowry where the bride's family pays the groom's family to take the burdensome girl, you know, off their hands. Um, But actually in most of the world, uh, outside of the West, uh, it's the reverse. It's bride price. uh, That is that the groom's family pays the bride's father uh, in order to marry. Uh, and so, for example, I think uh, one of the things that surprises uh some of my uh, western colleagues is uh, is is that countries that they would have considered to be far past uh these kinds of practices uh these practices are still very much alive so for example, in communist China, right pride price is a huge thing. Uh, and the price for a bride has skyrocketed as the one-child policy has induced a scarcity of young women in the marriage market. Um, So what used to be, you know, maybe 10,000 renminbi to marry, it's now 250,000 renminbi to marry. Um, And these, I think these kinds of pressures from bride price are something that uh, a, a lot of my colleagues really didn't think about. When uh, Hillary Matfess and I first published the Bride Price article, we were kind of surprised to get an email from a State Department official who had been working in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, and she was saying, um, you know, to us, and this is in the book as well, she was saying, yeah, we, we had village elders coming in and talking to us about how the cost of weddings was getting more and more expensive and how the Americans had to do something about it. And we were all like, well, you know, weddings in America are expensive too. You know, it's just kind of, what can you do? Tell them to rein in, you know, the cost of the bridal dress or whatever, you know, we were like, why are they coming to us and talking about wedding costs? And she said, now that I've read your article, I see what they were trying to get across to us is that as bride prices were elevating, uh, the Taliban were able to recruit the the, the young men in their village, right? Um, much more easily than they could have before. And that's why they thought the Americans ought to do something about it is because they saw the linkage between bride price and recruitment into the Taliban. And we did not. So I think... You know, that's, you know, the, the, I think you can be blindsided if you're not understanding how the first political order really affects the stability or the instability of your society. I, uh, when I talk to uh, members of the military, I say, look, this is a key part of your situational awareness. You know, if you have a commander in the field and he is totally ignorant that bride prices are skyrocketing, right? he is missing a key piece of the awareness he needs to have in order to anticipate trouble.
0: So related to these issues of, of marriage, you've written previously about the implications of abnormal birth sex ratios. And in the book, you talk about changes in South Korea. What steps did they take to try to deal with this issue?
1: Oh, I'm glad you've asked that question because, um, after you slog through the first uh, two-thirds of the book, where we sort of, you know, uh, try to make it very, very plain that you need to pay attention to this first political order, the question then naturally becomes, well, you know, if we're living in a, if we happen to be in a society that has these subordinate mechanisms, how do we get out of it, Right. Uh, And South Korea was one of the most subordinative societies where women uh, are concerned. Uh, And um, one of the uh, manifestations of this uh, was, of course, an abnormal birth sex ratio where sons are so much more prized than daughters were because it was a highly patrilineal society. Uh, where the true members of the South Korean clans were the men, and women didn't even show up on the genealogical charts, uh, and uh, so uh, this led uh, in, in in you know the age when uh, sex selective technology became available, fetal sex identification tests. Uh, to a very abnormal birth sex ratio in South Korea. They're still dealing with the fallout of that. Uh, for example, there's a huge marriage market where women from Southeast Asia and China uh, and other places um, uh, move to South Korea to marry because of the scarcity of women there. Uh, but more pertinent for our discussion is how did they begin to turn that around? Well, they had to dismantle the clans they um for example un- under previous law uh, the clans and the head of the clans um were, were were male basically head of clans could only be male and the head of clans got to make lots of important decisions so they had to dismantle that hoju system that they had in south korea uh and then the second thing that they had to do was they had to alter the calculus of the uh, that South Korean parents were having um, concerning the birth of daughters and sons uh, in South Korean society, as in all patrilineal societies, uh, elder care provision for the elderly uh, is provided by the sons, right? Uh, and so. Um, Why would you want to have a daughter um, uh, if that meant that you would be consigned to utter poverty in your old age? Uh, So South Korea realized that it had um, a big problem here. And one of the things that it did do, uh, which was so helpful, was it introduced a pension system for its elderly so that even if a family did have daughters— Right. They would not be utterly destitute in their old age. And so this has really helped to turn the tide. Uh, because daughters often provide much more hands-on care for the elderly anyway, uh, the idea that you didn't really necessarily need that son for the paycheck, uh, for the, the actual money, uh, meant that uh, parents began to actually prefer to have daughters than, than sons because the daughters were more attentive. And so um, South Korea managed to do something that no other nation has done within the last uh, 50 years, which is to take a highly abnormal birth sex ratio and normalize it. And they did it within the space of 25 years.
0: Improved treatment of women has obvious benefits for women, but you argue that the practices that harm women also ultimately harm men. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, you know, what's really surprising to me is that (laughs) I, I don't understand how it's been possible for people to say what happens with women stays with women. So if you subordinate women, it really doesn't affect men. Well, of course, it affects men. It absolutely affects men. Uh, In societies where you subordinate women, you know, you have greater conflict. You have greater terror. Um, You have um, also much worse health outcomes, Uh, and you also have um, much lower economic performance. Um, You also have unsustainably high fertility. Um, In other words, there's All of these things that are going to happen at the macro level, because of your subordination of women, are going to bite men just as much as they bite women. Uh, It's going to harm men. Uh, And so moving towards a society where the first political order is altered, where it is not so subordinative of women, um, I think is is absolutely going to redound to the benefit of men as well as women. In a sense, you can only have uh, peace in this world if you have peace between men and women.
0: And that relates to my next question, really, because the origins and roots of male dominance and male violence is a theme throughout the book. And you ask an interesting question about domestic violence. Is domestic violence terrorism?
1: Well, you I think you know my answer to that question is it absolutely is. And not only is it terrorism, um, but I think it's also a school for terrorism. I think there's uh, increasingly been shown that those um, is, uh, especially here in the United States, we've seen some fascinating research showing uh, how um, uh, many of our mass shooters, uh, and terrorists uh, actually have um, had previous <clears throat> run-ins with the law over domestic violence, whether it was abusing a mother, abusing a girlfriend, abusing a wife, um, that these things uh, were, were obviously there uh, at, almost as a marker uh, of, of folks who were, being schooled to take the functionality of terror from that interpersonal relationship and project it outwards uh, in in a more societally recognized form of terror.
0: I want to ask you also from a foreign policy standpoint, if you could talk about the Steinem rule and how that relates to Afghanistan and just the, the story behind that.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that question. This is just one of those priceless stories that um, I I had never heard before until I actually met Gloria Steinem. We had lunch one day, and she was telling this incredible story. And I said, and I was writing on the napkin as fast as I could. <laughs> and I said, I need to use the story because it is just so apropos of what we're writing. Uh, and she told the story of how uh, in... Um, I think it was very, very early 1980. She was at a State Department um, um, function down in in Washington, D.C. And, um, of course, in December of 1979, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Uh, And one of the speakers at this State Department event was discussing the rationale for supporting the Mujahideen, Um, the idea that uh, they were fighting the Soviets, a common enemy, that... uh, They were fighting the godless communists just as Americans wanted to fight the uh, godless communists and um, came out that uh, what the Taliban were really objecting to was that the communist-backed government in Afghanistan was uh, mandating education for girls and mandating that women have the right to vote and mandating that women have the right to uh, stand for political office uh, and this was seen as 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 just horrible by uh, by the um, the Afghan mujahideen and so Gloria Steinem raises her hand and she says, "Well, aren't we backing the wrong side then?" <laughs> Here we are backing the side that doesn't want women to be educated, that doesn't want women to vote, that doesn't want women to stand for political office. Aren't we backing the wrong side? And she says that my question fell into that um, silence that's reserved for the ridiculous. Uh, And she said uh, something to the effect of um, it's in the book, but I don't have the book in front of me. It, you know, if 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 we had known then what we know now, right, that the Mujahideen morphed into the Taliban, uh, she said, I would have chained myself to the, the the seat in that auditorium until I got a good answer. Uh, and I think she's uh, she's absolutely right. Is that when, for example, the United States has involved itself in a number of of uh, clashes of subnational groups? Uh, or situations like Afghanistan. Uh, So when we're deciding who we're going to back, do we ever look at what their agenda is for women? Do we ever say to ourselves, oh, we couldn't possibly back this particular group because, oh my goodness, look (laughs) look at how they treat women. Look at what they're proposing for women once they get into power. Well, we don't. Uh, And so we suggest that maybe there should be the Steinem rule um, that a subnational group's um, uh, position on women uh, ought to be uh, a huge part of uh, our decisions about whether to back them and how strongly to back them. Uh, And we see that this can bear fruit. I'll give you an example. When Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, Um, The Kurds, I think, as you know, uh, in Iraq were very eager to maintain strong American support in a very insecure environment. Uh, And uh, Hillary Clinton uh, mentioned that she was aghast to discover that female genital cutting was uh, legal in Iraqi Kurdistan, whereupon it swiftly became illegal in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, So there's an interesting example of how uh, a third party like the United States saying, well, let's just take a look also at how you treat your women can produce uh, changes in the first political order in recipient states.
0: So you talk about a few key policy recommendations in the book, like ending child marriage and looking at property rights for women, to name a few. Can you talk more about these and any key recommendations for improvement?
1: Yeah, in fact, I think the, the, the last part of the book for me, of course, is the most interesting because there we look at a wide-ranging historical and also cross-continental look at how societies uh, have tried to leave that subordinative uh, first political order. Uh, and, um, so it, that takes us all the way from medieval Europe to, um, Soviet Central Asia before the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, to Byzantium, to South Korea. So, um, those who are looking for, you know, under what circumstances changes to the first political order have been successful, um, would Be very interested, I think, in that last part of the book. Um, But as you say, um, we also, in the final chapter of the book, kind of put it all together and say, you know, what did we learn? You know, what are the things that we think we would concentrate on if we were policy makers? And we point to some low-hanging fruit. Um, The first is child marriage for girls. I, I think you you probably are aware that in many countries of the world. Uh, girls are, are married off traditionally before age 16. And we talk about how the, that is just a very significant hub issue that brings along with it all sorts of terrible negative consequences uh, for the, the next generation, that is the children that that child bride has, miring, if you will, a, uh, a society in poverty and even ignorance. Uh, And so we've seen a remarkable uh, change in law. Um, So since uh, the turn of the century, it still seems odd to me to say that, but since the turn of the century, we've seen another 60 plus countries that have uh, raised their marriage age. In some cases, they didn't have a minimum age for marriage for girls. Uh, For for others, it was, you know, very low. Raised um, that age to 18 in the law. Of course, practice on the ground lags, uh, but if enforcement can be stepped up, that is a huge and critical issue to turn these things around. Uh, because the the marriage of a 14-year-old to a man who is 10 or 20 years older than she is, um, you know, sets the, that first political order within the household on a terribly subordinative and oppressive uh, and terroristic um, foundation. A second thing that we, uh, we've we already talked about is the provision of pensions for the elderly. Uh, son preference, a deep son preference is engendered when your son is going to be your lifeline, uh, when your son is the one who's going to take care of you or is tasked societally with taking care of you. Uh, when that moves away from sons, uh, and the government provides uh, for uh, at least some uh, modicum of elder care, then people begin to see that their daughters are actually as or more valuable to them uh, than their sons in terms of caregiving. And so the uh, the comparative advantage of having sons versus daughters disappears. Uh, another uh, low-hanging fruit, I think, is polygyny. Uh, That is, the marriage of one man to more than one woman. Uh, My colleague, Rose McDermott at Brown University, has written just a fantastic book. She's an IR scholar, an international relations scholar. She's written a book on the evils of polygyny. That's actually the title, The Evils of Polygyny, showing how polygynous societies are inherently unstable. Uh, and, And what's fascinating to us in the research for this book is we discovered that uh, folks who are in polygynous societies admit, absolutely admit, that it destabilizes their societies. Uh, and so there's strong internal voices within these nations that practice polygyny uh, to try to, to do away with it and, and stabilize the society. Uh, And then last but not least is while um, the focus has been, I think, on getting women into positions of executive authority or women um, in the legislative branch, um, it's our feeling that the branch that needs the greatest influx of women is actually the judicial branch. It is in the application of the law. It is in prosecution. It's in the uh, enforcement of the law uh, that, uh, women's lives will actually change on the ground. So those are sort of the major highlights, but we have many other things that we look at, such as the role that religious figures can play, uh, and so forth. in in turning around the first political order.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, I'd like to ask you, Valerie, what are you working on next?
1: Oh, I'm doing this um, wonderful project um, with um, Andrea Denboer of the University of Kent at Canterbury and Laura Renner at the University of Freiburg in Germany where we're actually looking at marriage market migration and what effects that has on um, source countries and destination countries. Uh, As you know, there is a huge dearth of women in Asia particularly in China and India with their massive populations, but also in many other countries, such as Vietnam um, and Taiwan and, and, and others. Um, so while the international community has been uh, really on top of tracking refugees and asylum seekers, um, what's not been tracked is the migration of women for marriage purposes to deal with these scarcity issues. So we would like to look at what happens to the countries from which uh, these foreign brides come, as well as the effects on the societies to which they go. Uh, And as you can imagine, there's hardly any data. So it's a data challenge uh, as well as a theoretical challenge uh, to look at this question. So I'm kind of excited by that.
0: Thanks for coming on today and talking about your work.
1: It's been my pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
0: We continue now our discussion of the first political order, how sex shapes governance and national security worldwide by Valerie Hudson, Donnelly Bowen, and Perpetua Lynn Nielsen. The first political order is based on statistical analysis of the work done through the Women's Stats Project, and we want to dive into that in more depth. Co-authors Donna Lee Bowen and Lynn Nielsen join me now to continue the discussion. Donna Lee Bowen is a professor of political science and Middle East Studies at Brigham Young University, where she teaches courses in comparative politics, Middle East politics, Middle East area studies, and gender politics. She received her PhD from the University of Chicago. Professor Bowen writes on the intersection of religion, tradition, and politics in the Middle East and has authored articles and a forthcoming book on attempts to construct policy which reflects Muslim sensibilities, specifically social policy concerning family planning and abortion. Her edited book, Everyday Life in the Muslim Middle East, is widely used in universities and a third edition is available now. She is currently working on research determining the relationship between family law and state peacefulness. She has lived, traveled, and researched in North Africa and the Middle East, has held two Fulbright grants to Morocco and Tunisia, and has also received research funding from the Ford Foundation, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the David M. Kennedy Center. Lynn Nielsen is an associate teaching professor of statistics at Brigham Young University, and joined the Women's Stats Project in the fall of 2012 after co-writing a Politics and Gender Journal article with Valerie Hudson and Donnelly Bowen. Her research interests are in the area of women's situations in clan-based societies, clans in the rule of law, mentoring women in higher education, statistics education, classical test theory, and blended learning in large distance education courses. Prior to her BYU faculty appointment, Nielsen worked for the Philippine government, conducting nationwide surveys to measure the socioeconomic impact of electrification on rural households and small businesses, at Intel as a statistical process control consultant, and at SkyMall as a market research director. Nielsen received a bachelor's in mathematics from the University of the Philippines a master's in statistics from Brigham Young University, and received her PhD in instructional psychology and technology also from BYU. Donnelly and Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're so pleased to be here. Thank you. To talk more about this fascinating work, I'm excited to introduce a special guest co-host, Minna Whelan. Minna is a fourth-year graduate student in statistics at Northwestern University and is president of Women in Statistics on campus. She does statistical methodology research on social policy with applications in health policy. Thanks for coming on, Minna. Hi, thanks for having me. Donna Lee. can you tell us about the Women's Stats Project and how you got involved? Valerie started up project
2: partially after she and I taught a class called, with a very long name, The International Political Economy of Women. And she began the program for Women's Stats. I was not able to join her at that point. But much of the materials that we covered in team teaching the class found their way into her book with our other Women's Stats um, co-PIs, entitled Sex and World Peace. And she uh, asked me to come in and help with things. She sent a postcard. I was in Morocco at the time. My husband called me and said, Valerie has just sent you a postcard that said, Do you, are there any issues with women in the Middle East? And he just started to laugh and laugh and laugh. And so when she came back, we began work on this, the project. She set up the research part of the project following teaching it for quite a while. And then uh, later on, as Lynn has indicated, she needed help on an article that she was thinking about writing. And so she pulled me in to talk about this and we needed statistical help. And so Lynn came and joined us. The three of us have been friends for quite a while, and it was a wonderful opportunity to begin working together.
0: And Lynn, can you tell us more about your journey to joining Women's Stats? I was a full time
3: professor and uh, raising five children at home. And so at the beginning, I, hes- I was hesitant to uh, join them because I wasn't sure if I had the time. Um, however, being raised in the Philippines, I was aware of uh, the privileges that men had that uh, were not available to women. And so I was um, favorably inclined. And so finally, um, actually it was one of my daughters who said, mom, this um, Women's Stats project sounds really good. And so I was heartened and decided to join them. And my daughter actually became one of the research assistants. So I think the culmination of my involvement was the ClanSM article that we published in 2015 with the with APSR. And since then I have learned a lot about women's situations worldwide. and since then, whenever they needed help with statist- with statistical modeling, I was very happy to join them. And not only that, I al- also became really involved. And became very passionate about the situations that I learned about, not only in Asia, but especially in the Middle East. So that's how I became involved with a Women's ads Project. And now I'm one of the co-PIs. And I also wanted to share that it took me almost seven years to finish my PhD, which I actually um, obtained in 2018. So I... I um, Uh, I guess think of myself as one of those women whose situation was different from most of my co-PIs, but I am so happy and so honored to be part of the Women's Stats Project, and especially this book that we have worked on for more than five years.
0: Valerie talked with me about the patrilineal fraternal syndrome, and we want to talk more about how you use the data to examine this across different countries. Donna Lee, why was this an important approach from your perspective?
2: Valerie works in security issues and I work, I'm in a political science department. I work more from the perspective of comparative government and pulling together the reasons as to why different parts of the world have had more challenges in setting up representative governments and indeed in giving women more equal rights has been an enormous question for me for a very long time. It became a fascinating question to begin to link the security mechanisms of tribes and clans as they work to cooperate with governments and often to work to dominate or even to oppose governments as part of um, the governance issue. When this links with women's issues, it became truly fascinating to us.
3: Well, one thing was in our work, we noticed that the inequality between men and women was not just in certain parts of the world, but it was like ubiquitous all over, and so we want to know what can explain this phenomena. And so we did a lot of readings, and something always came up. And in fact, in our clanism article, we actually had a subset of the variables that is found in in the patrilineal syndrome. And um, it was just, I guess, eye opening for me how um, this syndrome was present in pretty much all societies and no one has actually looked at it because there were um, most people or most of the researchers most of the scholars in the international relations world were looking at different indicators not on women's situation so i guess that's how how it all uh, how all of these informed our uh, research
4: In your guys' analysis, you guys used a linear regression to show an association between your syndrome scale and some outcome dimensions for a given state or society. There are nine dimension outcomes, the political stability and governance, security and conflict, economic performance, economic renterism, health and well-being, demographic security, education of the population, social progress, and environmental protection. Donnelly, could you talk about how you decided to use these nine dimensions as outcomes?
2: That was a later stage in the research after we had done our theoretical work and after we had put together the um, American Political Science Review article. And we knew by then that there were some very strong correlations. And as we began to sort through possible outcome variables, we worked for an entire summer to generate as many possible outcome variables as we could come up with. And we generated, if I'm remembering correctly, a list of over 400 possible outcome variables, a huge list. And we then eliminated ones that we didn't think would work for various reasons. And then we began to group them together. And once we grouped them together, we saw that we had essentially nine different dimensions. And then we began to work to refine the outcome variables in each dimension. We we knew that we had a very large study. When we started, we were looking at questions such as domestic violence, violence in the home and in the family, and inequitable family law. Those were two of the things that, that we knew we had to account for somehow. And we wondered whether there was a silver bullet that would explain women's subordination throughout the entire world and over time. And we found that we couldn't come up with any one specific variable, but we put together what what we now call the syndrome, which is a number of various, oh, what would be the best word for it, various practices. That one finds in homes and combining these together gave us a syndrome, and then we could see how the syndrome affected life throughout the world in those nine different dimensions. just to add to what Donnelly has um shared,
3: it took us a while. We pretty much scoured the internet and all the indicators, measures that were given out by. United Nations, by World Health Organization, by CIA, and, you know, other entities. And so it took us a long, long time and to actually organize all of these variables. And not only did we use the expertise of Valerie and uh, Donnelly, but we also um, used statistical methods to pare down all of these variables and as Donnelly said 400 at least 400 of them into this nine that not only made sense but also that we were very interested in that we thought would that would make the most impact uh, when we start writing about the situation of women especially when it came to uh, education of the population
4: the health and well-being and so that's how these uh, nine dimensions came about. So going off of these dimensions, and you're saying there's dozens of variables within each of these dimensions um, that relate to that specific topic. So you guys ran a factor analysis of all those variables, which would allow for factors to be grouped together. And those different factors could relate to that one dimension. So I wanted to ask about sometimes in your analysis, you would use a factor as an outcome. And sometimes you would use a single variable, like monopoly of use of force in the second dimension. Lynn, specifically, why did you pick sometimes single variables as outcomes and sometimes factors, which are grouped outcomes? First off, we look at correlations
3: among some variables. And if there is a high correlation, then we made a decision, which of these two variables we, are we going to use? And these are the categories. I mean, how we decided one was, um, the, the sample size and number two is the source of the information, whether the entity who produced them, you know, had a good reputation and also based on Valerie's and Donnelly's expertise, that's how we decided. Then after we've done this first, passed through. Then we did our factor analysis. And although some variables loaded nicely on some factors, some did not. And then what we did was we decided uh, among ourselves uh, which of the factors will keep us is, or if some of the variables within a factor that cross-loaded were important, then we actually decided to do them separately. Now for the outcome variables, we just did EFA. We did not use CFA um, because we just wanted to reduce the number of variables that we were dealing with. And so we used EFA results and also uh, results from our research and also from the expertise of Donnelly and Valerie to come up with a final list of outcome variables that we use in each one of these
4: dimensions. In each regression, you guys used contextual and control variables to help the regression hold things constant that could explain differences between states that aren't related to the syndrome. Can you talk about the differences between the types of variables? For example, urbanization and percent arable land is pretty straightforward to understand. But something like aggregated civilization identification maybe needs more explanation. Donnelly, could you, how did you mix those quantifiable measures with theory-informed measures?
2: Again, let me just give a shout out to the American Political Science Review article because we tested some of some of these questions and all of the initial statistical analysis for that article. But civilization was a particularly sensitive question. We, we know through our study of comparative religion over time and over history that religions have been a force to sometimes hold women back and the religious beliefs, which usually don't measure up in terms of religion, but certainly do in terms of traditional practice. So practices that have been, that have gone on traditionally for years and years in various places are are passed off as religious, as for religious reasons. And we knew that we had to test this because the first question that up is what does uh, is Islam at fault for this? Is Buddhism at fault for this? Is Confucianism at fault for this? What about various types of Christianity? And so we knew that had to be tested. We went to the controversial article written by Samuel Huntington, The Clash of Civilizations, in which he spelled out a number of different world civilizations, most of which coalesced around religious practices and the more we began to we began to look at that statistically we found that we could reduce the number of civilizations and so this was one of our major tests because we had to be able to explain to people that would question our findings whether we, whether we were ignoring religion as an explanatory variable for women's subordination when we uh, finished all of the work We we found that religion simply doesn't explain anything. You cannot blame different religions for women's subordination. It it doesn't hold at all. And we, if you go through the book carefully, you'll find that some um, that some of the outcome variables do show a a correlation with religious practice. For example, um, Muslim civilization um corresponds to alcoholism and in a in a negative way because alcohol is generally not accepted in islam although so many people will I probably shouldn't say this but on the ground people do drink wine and some people even drink whiskey but we we found that that there were correlations but none of them it came they explained what what else was going on. They didn't explain the syndrome. They It simply it made a great control variable, but it didn't explain what was going on. Lynn may want to add to that in some way.
3: Yes. So we did use Huntington's um, civilization variable, but it had seven categories. And with our sample size, there were a lot of cell counts that were empty and so we decided to collapse some of the variables that made sense so that our civilization variable acted as only four categories. So that is one difference in Huntington's in our type of civilization. So which is one of the explanatory variables that we have that are categorical. The other one is colonization status. And um this variable was actually developed by Valerie and, and Donnelly. And I would like to just, Donnelly, because you work closely with this one, how uh, civ- colon, you know this uh, variable was developed.
2: Colonization is a question that comes up often for um, questions of governance as to how much has been put in place by the colonial powers. And so we thought we'd better look at this um Valerie and I w- decided that we had better do our own coding of the colonization over time and um if if you look at our appendix we list what the what criteria we used to make it slightly slightly different than often what's done we went back Oh, two, three hundred years in terms of whether countries have been colonized again, because generally when they do colonization metrics, they simply look to the First World War. But we determined that we needed to go back quite a bit farther than that. And so we set up our own coding and it turned out to be like like civilization, a viable explanation in a few cases, but for the most part, it didn't tell us very much. But we hope that what we've done is a beginning point and that groups that have particular interest in some of these questions will um, take what we've done as a foundation point and we'll do further work. There, there is so much yet to be discovered, and our book was too long. <laughs> Our book was very long, as it is, but we could have made it longer. But we hope that, that our work will fuel
0: interest in these questions and that people will follow up. So I think this relates kind of to my next question. Was accounting for culture and different interpretations of some measures challenging? Donnelly, could you maybe start off with talking about how you look to standardize variables, given the cultural differences.
2: the The
0: eleven pieces
2: of the syndrome are found to our amazement throughout the world. So, while cousin marriage is found more in some countries than others, um, we or um, patrilocal marriages. Domestic violence. We, we know that most of this goes on throughout the world at one time or another. We, we don't have a lot of data on this. And so the basic assumption that we made is that if you go back to the beginning of time, tribes were a very useful way to organize social groups and, particularly, kinship groups that had a reason to protect each other. And over time, over the millennia, in some areas, tribes and clans have persisted. In other areas, various other political philosophies and forms of governments have come into practice. And we summarize this by using Sir Henry Main's categories of status societies and contract societies. Status societies are societies that are based on family rules, on traditions, that follow through various practices and look at the community as the basic unit of analysis. So many of the countries in the Middle East or Africa, South Asia would fall into this category. Status societies, rather, are countries that have worked to form a very different type of governance where the basic unit is the individual. And one sees in these countries, such as Great Britain, France, the Scandinavian countries, Australia, the United States, and now countries such as Japan and South Korea have joined this group. One sees a contract that is made between the powers that be in the country, generally the governments, and this is usually set out in a nation's constitution, where individuals' and individual rights become very important. Now, for, for these contract societies, they have made over time enormous progress in granting women rights the right to vote, very different um, rights in marriage and within the family, and um, rights in owning property, in controlling their own money. Now, one hits all kinds of different cultural differences here. But for the most part, when you begin to look, our question was, if we look at areas where women have more rights, is there a correlation with the type of governments? Do you see rule of law? Do you see less corruption? Do you see a greater turn to representative government and truly competitive elections? And luckily for us, there are some excellent databases that are being put together. Uh, the VDEM database is, is superb and they go on adding to this every single year with every iteration. So the the connections between it's it's not just a connection between culture and women's subordination but the the forms of informal socialization that we find in kinship groups in tribes in families they relate to a number of different practices that one sees in the world today. So take Scotland, for example. Any of us that are Scots in our ancestry know that there were clans, and clans were very significant in the social organization in the history of Scotland. But Scotland has moved, along with Britain, to away from a status-based society to a contract-based society. And so the position of women in Scotland, I think if we could break it out, which we're not not able to do breakouts, unfortunately, but we hope people will do this in the future. But when, when one looks at Great Britain or at the United Kingdom, one sees that the status of women is very high. And as a result, they do better on the governance indicators and on a number of the other indicators.
4: I would like to thank all the authors of this book um, for your efforts to be really transparent and reproducible on all of your analysis. It really promotes good scientific work and it helps others expand upon your research. Lynn, could you talk about your thought process with creating this type of research analysis plan that is reproducible? Yes, So we started out with women's stats
3: and we wanted to be very transparent there because that's actually the the information we used for this book, most of them especially, um, the creation and validation of the syndrome scale. And so first off, we made sure that our research assistants were not only um, interested in this topic, but we're competent. And then we have actually good training. I mean, not just good, but very comprehensive and intensive, uh, rigorous training, so that when we ask them to, okay, you are in charge of cousin marriage, for example, and you're in charge of figuring out the prevalence of cousin marriages in these countries, then they um, scour the internet, And if they can't find anything, we actually sent them one time to a United Nations um, conference in New York where they were actually able to connect with uh, researchers, scholars from the country that we had very little information about. So that was the first thing. And then for every variable that we assigned or that we were interested in, we made sure there were at least three um, coders, researchers who worked on it so that we can triangulate the results so that when we start coming up with scales, most of the women's death scales are ordinal, like from zero, one, two, and three. And sometimes, for example, polygyny, uh, the prevalence of polygyny, um, I think zero was less than 5%. One is um, less than 10% or 15%. Then we made sure that although these are not arbitrary, but there's, they are informed by theory that they made sense, and that when a copi like me or Donnelly or Valerie worked with two other coders as they scaled these particular variables, that keep—I mean, the ones who visited women's stats can actually go back to oh, so this is the source of their decision to scale this or to assign a numbers, one or two or three to this particular country. So we made sure that we are very transparent, starting with the Women's Test Project. Then number two, we also, as we started um, compiling all these variables, we made sure that it was on a a website. It's easy to share with other scholars who wanted to reproduce or replicate our findings. And so this, these were the two things that we made sure were available to everyone and that we were very transparent.
2: I I want to add, first of all, it's rather amazing but at Brigham Young University and in the original women's stats groups, almost all of our researchers are undergraduates. At Texas A&M and at Rosario and at the University of Kent, they tend to be graduate students. But BYU doesn't have many graduate programs at this point. And so we found that we we needed to recruit some of our brightest students. And so we're picking up the students often in their sophomore year and training them and putting them to work. And then we can use them for two years of coding. They do a very, very good job, and they receive quite an education. One of our bachelor degree graduates that we recruited is Kaylee Hodgson, who was working on a master's degree in statistics while we were doing our empirical analysis. And she helped us to such an extent that we have given her credit on the book. She simply did an amazing job in aiding us with the analysis so part of the success of the book is the work not just of the three of us and our co-pIs which are all listed on the women's stats website but the students who have worked with us over the years and their names are all also on the women's stats website and just let me reinforce what Lynn said, which is all of the data that we've used for this research is available. So simply go to the Women's Stats website, um, set up a login, and you're welcome to use it as long as you give us credit. And We hope that you will build on it.
0: So, Donnelly, having read your work, Everyday Life, in the Muslim Middle East as an undergrad, I have to ask, were there any findings in that region or even globally that surprised you based on your previous work? Thank you for the compliment. The the contributors
2: did a wonderful job under our prompting. And the third book is out and has some exceptional articles. Those books are set up to try to lay out what to to try to counter stereotypes and to try to give a sense of what is really happening in the Middle East. The work that I do with women's stats is work that pains my heart because I begin to see with our statistical analysis and with the materials that we generate some of the negative situations. So I, when I did my research there, encountered mostly positive situations for the most part. People that were very well-educated, very bright. When I went to the villages to interview the, the women that I worked with, were they, they were fascinating. And while we didn't agree on everything, I learned so much about their individual situations. Seeing their situations aggregated aggregated statistically, as we did in one study and then as we've done here, demonstrates to me that we have so much work to do, so much work to do internationally to help these individual women have the promise of a better life, to help the girls have the opportunities to go through school and have a voice in, in their marriage. I, I knew from my time in the Middle East that polygamy was, was very, very limited. And the countries that I worked in had less cousin marriage and did not have any practices of female genital cutting, for example, as you find in Sudan and in Egypt, and then spread in spots around other countries closer to there. Um, Morocco and Tunisia also had very few few, if any, examples of honor killings. But yet, as one looks throughout the rest of the, the Asia, Africa, there are examples of these practices and also some truly heartrending rending practices. Um, a CNN article that we were circulating this morning talks about the practice of widow abasement that widows, once their husband die, and this is in an African country, once a husband dies, it is assumed that the wife murdered him, and she has to prove her innocence. And there are very various ways of doing this, but the article talks about ways in which she is humiliated totally at his gravesite in front of the rest of the community. She's stripped of her clothes, her head is shaved, And in many areas, she's uh, expected to marry again immediately. These practices are ready to be countered.
0: And Lynn, I want to ask you a similar question. Was there anything in the findings that you found surprising or or particularly um, interesting that you would highlight? So when I first joined the
3: project, I was... One of the skeptics. I uh, didn't think there was any empirical um, connection between the claims that women's situation actually, um, if they were improved, could make a difference uh, in the progress of a country. And so it started with the clanism article that we uh, wrote. I was very surprised that the clan scale and the, even the syndrome scale, which I first initially felt was it kind of watered down the clanism Index because we added things like bride price, which I had very little um, information about bride price and dowry and rape exemption, for example, or a son preference that's quantified. And so one of, my, one of the, and I'm so happy, I mean, that I was surprised by the findings because at first I was thinking, oh, this is just an exploratory study. We don't know what we're going to find. And so I was pleasantly surprised that there was actually empirical data on our theoretical framework, on the theories that Valerie and Donnelly has been espousing through these years. So that was one of the surprising outcomes for a skeptic like me. And one of the things that we have been talking about is how can we move a country from Afghanistan to Denmark, uh, comparing the women's situations in these two societies. And so I think that is one thing that has informed not only our work, but also our personal um, opinion and our even now our, our personal work. So I guess that is the challenge for for everyone is how can we both as individual citizens, researchers, move a country from Afghanistan to Denmark? And we need to look at not only laws, but also practices and most important data. And data is one thing that we need more of because it's so hard to make informed decisions when you actually don't have data or when the data that is given to you may not be trustworthy like the rape data because it is so hard to uh, number one, not only get law, but also practice um, in especially in countries where uh, rape is and I talked about it was taboo, so there's so much underreporting, and so those have been those are the challenges that we have faced. It's not just the validity of law, but especially the data that we have.
2: We've learned so much writing this book and researching it. We we have learned so much, but one of the things that that is kind of a bottom line issue is that when we look at women's status, for the most part, we look at questions of earning ability. We look at GDP. We look at labor force activity. We look at education. And we look at how this combines. we look at parliamentary representation. So do we see women being represented in the leadership of countries? and i think what what is very surprising is that those factors correlate somewhat with the work that we've done but for the most part we have begun to suspect that those factors are secondary and that if you truly want to change women's position worldwide we have to look at the most basic relationships and the power equivalence within the household. So do women have access to resources in the household? What is their status? Is their status equal with the men in the household? Um, When conflicts arise, how, how are they resolved? Are they resolved violently? Are they resolved by reaching an agreement? And the, the 11 um, pieces of the algorithm for the syndrome are ways in which power differentials are unbalanced. And those, that unbalance, that lack of balance, means that women cannot gain status or even come close to it in their relationships with their menfolk. And what we've learned from the research that we've done is, is that this does not just apply to the women, but it applies to all the other groups in the society that are treated as inferiors or as subordinates. Sometimes these are ethnic groups, sometimes they're religious groups, sometimes they're people of different economic, socioeconomic classes. But when we begin to look at justice, we have to look at it sometimes in the most intimate recesses of our lives, which are our homes and our households. And individuals are very resistant to doing this because our identity, our personal identity, and in some ways our personal worth, could be very closely linked to our sex. So that's... That's an area that is going to take a very long time to play out. And we emphasize that while we see progress being made, and we labeled a number of countries as possibly transitional countries, we also see right now, this, this past week, in, in the area that the U.S. that I work in, and I think countrywide, we are seeing more domestic violence in households. Why? Because there is so much going on that's causing uncertainty and fear and insecurity. And how do we deal with it? Well, we take it out on each other. So we, we note that these relationships are going to be, um, are, are always in flux. They, are, they will always be in flux until we can make major, major changes.
0: You know, we've taken up a lot of your time but before we let you go I wanted to see what you're working on next and I thought I'd start with you Donna Lee i I have gone back to my
2: family planning research i I have a manuscript together but I want to change a couple of chapters and I think um, the 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 question that I ask is what does Islam have to do with positions on family planning in 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 the Middle East, and I particularly look at Morocco and Tunisia. They were were quite good examples, and they've remained good examples. And I have a lot of uh, latitudinal data over time as to what people say. Part of my primary research was interviewing religious leaders about family planning and if it's permissible in Islam and i found very strong trends depending on the position of the religious leader and the amount of education they had had and this actually tracks back a millennia through islamic jurisprudence now that i have the particular mindset that, that the first political order book has given to me i want to apply some of that we were i was always very aware of the personal status law and but I hadn't been able to fit it together quite as well as I think I can now so I'm hoping to get this done at some point in the future and Lynn what are your upcoming projects so I am
3: actually working on resubmission of an article regarding statistics education and distance education that we did a, a randomized control experiment in an independent study setting. We wanted to know what characteristics of students make them successful in an online learning environment. And another one that I'm looking at is uh, developing a scale for learner autonomy, because we think this is one characteristic that would either make a student successful or unsuccessful in an online learning environment. Regarding women's stats, Downley and I actually met last week to discuss a question regarding uh, what if we do some more statistical models, but this time we look at GDP or the wealth of a nation and and how it explains some of these um, outcome variables. Because in our book, uh, the wealth of a country is an outcome variable we would like to see is uh, maybe a competing or a complementary explanatory variable with the syndrome. So we are looking into that, and we don't know what we're going to find. Well, thank you both for joining us.
2: Well, you're welcome. It has been a pleasure. It has been a great honor to talk
0: with you. Thank you for your excellent questions. And thanks to my guest co-host, Minna Whelan, for visiting today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide by Valerie Hudson, Donnelly Bowen, and Perpetua Lynn Nielsen is available now from Columbia University Press. Thank you for joining New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.